Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. My young friends often say to me, we can tell you anything because you're so not judgmental. And the first time that was said to me many years ago, I thought, oh, that's probably true. I think to portray other people who are very different from yourself, you have to have a really open mind. It's best not to be judgmental when you're playing even the most evil of characters to get inside their heads. You, it's better to come at it from an unjudgmental way. I've played some villains and it's not until after I see the finished work that I can say, oh, what a dreadful person. That was Jackie Weaver. I'm Sam Fragoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. Uh, if you have not been here before, uh, I welcome you. If you've been here many times before, I welcome you back. Just some housekeeping at the top. Um, I want to thank the people who have donated to the show thus far. We are a listener-supported program, and so every dollar really does help us out. If you like this show and have considered donating in the past, be sure to check out our site at talkeasypod.com slash donate. Um, on that page, you'll see how and where you can help us out. Um, if you are in a place financially uh, where you cannot help us out, do not worry. Um, I understand these are trying times for many of us. Um, really, just sharing the show with a friend uh, or on social media 
really does help new people find this podcast. And since we are a smaller, independently run operation, we do not have a larger apparatus to constantly be promoting and finding new people to listen. And so we really do look to the people who like this show to share the show with uh, other interested parties. So uh, I want to thank everyone who's helped out both in donations and on social media. Um, We have had a wonderful string of episodes with folks like Chaz Ebert, Wyatt Sinak, Werner Herzog, Pam Greer, Kenneth Brana, and those are just the last five people we've had on. If you'd like to find those episodes and more, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com. The show is also available to stream on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. So without further ado, I want to welcome Jackie Weaver to the podcast. She is a a true living legend. Um, She was a legend in Australia for many, many years before she was discovered in America. The film that kind of changed everything for her was a piece called Animal Kingdom. Um, If you have not seen Animal Kingdom, I, I would really urge you to seek that piece out. Since then, she's been in a handful of wonderful films that you have probably seen including Silver Linings Playbook, Stoker, The Voices, Bird Box, Widows, Out of Blue. She was also great in The Disaster Artist and The Polka King. Really, whatever she is in, she's absolutely dynamite. Her latest film is called Palms, which came out a couple weeks ago. But her most recent piece is a a part in a television show called Perpetual Grace Limited. It stars Jimmy Simpson, Sir Ben Kingsley, Luis Guzman, and others. It premieres today, Sunday, June 2nd on Epics. And uh, now let's play a bit from the trailer. Love you. Love you too. Four million dollars. We should take that money. It'll be easy. We're just a couple old people. You feel like a new man? Brand new mom. I've helped shooters, tutors, tweakers, mess geeks, speed freaks, hoppers, and droppers. All of God's children. Get it, honey? We have a church where we treat men and women troubled, such as you. It's a new day, boy. What brings you to Half Acre? Parents. Cool. They just died, though, so... That's not so cool. No. That's not the plan. Go do the fucking plan! I am going to kill you. He's an old man. He's not. Turns out. Prepare for the devil. We probably should get a gun, Paul. At some point in this interview, Jackie talks about having uh, a lot of younger friends and that these younger friends often tell her, we like you because you're someone who completely reserves judgment. And I have to say, in the hour of talking with Jackie Weaver, um, she is exactly the kind of person I love having on this show. She's deeply warm and and vulnerable and honest. And she's the kind of guest that uh, is open to answering and talking about anything. You're going to hear Jackie and I discuss everything from her parents and their long love to starting out in Australia as a singer to making it big in America while she was in her 60s, the moment where she beat cancer, you're going to hear Jackie and I uh, do our best to capture 71 years. Um, We do not succeed entirely, but 
we do hit on some moments that I think are important. And uh, it was a real pleasure and honor to sit down with someone like Jackie Weaver. She is an incredible talent and uh, a dynamic performer who generates empathy uh, really in every role that she has done. So if you are not so familiar with her work, um, I think this episode will still mean something to you. But I do encourage you to seek out Perpetual Grace Limited. And I do encourage you to check out uh, 50 years of astonishing, breathtaking work. So without further ado, here is the one and only Jackie Weaver. Are you are you a little bit nervous right now? No. Oh, okay. Are I, you? No, no, I'm not. Oh, ready. good. I'm no, ready. no, I'm cool. We have so many places to begin uh, in, in your life and in your career. If you can with me, I want to start at the beginning. Oh, okay. It's, it's been a very long life. That's a long way back to That's beginning. That's a lo- long way back. We have an hour. <laughs> We're going to try to get 71 years of life in an hour. Nearly 72 in May, Couple May weeks, 25th. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's start with your mother and your father. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Edith and Arthur, you described your mother as the most cleverest and gracious of women, and your father the third most handsome and the best man I've ever hugged. Yeah, that's true. What is your, like, earliest childhood memory with them growing up in Sydney? I can remember pretending to be other people right from a very early age and them being very... Um, very un, unfazed by it. What was it that you wanted to play characters early on as a kid? I just found people fascinating and I was probably bored with my own self. That's why I wanted to be <laughs> all different other people. You know, I used to be, pretend to be French and Italian and put on accents and I was an odd little girl. You didn't find being Australian interesting enough? Um... I was happy in my own skin. My mother was English, so I was encouraged to sound like a little English person. I had to teach myself to sound Australian. I was sent to elocution lessons very early on, Mm. and I had a frightfully posh accent. I used to talk a bit like Emily Blunt, and I have played Emily Blunt's mother, so it stood me in good stead. (laughs) My mother used to speak a bit like Her Majesty the Queen. Mm. Elizabeth. But my dad was Aussie. But we don't all, I mean, I've got a really middle-of-the-road Australian accent and we don't all sound like, you know, Steve Irwin or um, the really broad. Australia has a variety of accents just in the same way that England and America do. Mm. (laughs) And mine's kind of middle-of-the-road. Is there ever a moment when, when you're a kid where you think, you know, acting seems like an idea that makes sense. Because I know in high school, um, you were very academically accomplished and, and worked very hard and were like the top of your class in high, in high school. I, I, I did do well academically, yeah. But I think, you know, it was a foregone conclusion in the whole family that I was going to be an actor right from, right from I was a little tot. 
running around pretending to be other people. I think they thought I was a storyteller. Do you think you were born to do it? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I was. They sent me to all sorts of children's theatre classes and I was also little. I was no good at sport or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess they they decided on that activity for me. I I used to do singing lessons. They wouldn't let me tap dance, which I was always very disappointed about. I've, I've been thinking maybe I could start tap dancing lessons in Los Angeles. It is never too late to start tap dancing. Really? Um, I don't know about these old knees. Well, you're in a movie specifically where you are uh, <laughs> That's right, now part of being a cheerleading group. It nearly killed me. It nearly killed me. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, on the singing point, uh, throughout your teenage years, you are singing and recording some music. And I have here um, a clip I want to watch with you. Um, I want to set it up for people listening at home. Uh, it is 1966. You are 19 uh, on Australian Bandstand. <laughs> You're singing a song called Young Love. Let's take a listen. worry about the way I looked and now I look at that I think I I didn't look so bad. (laughs) I think you look nice. (laughs) It's funny that when that's one of the first things I say when when I'm asked in interviews what advice would you give young actresses I always say try not to be obsessed with your looks Mm -hmm. because because everyone has got something attractive about them. I believe that. Yeah. Do you remember at 19 feeling nervous about being on television and singing a song to Australia? No, no I wasn't nervous. But you see that, I, I made my professional debut when I was 15. Mm-hmm. So I was quite seasoned by 19. Right. I'd been around. Because you start with Hansel and Gretel and you move on. Well, it was Cinderella. I I, I did a stage play first mm. and, um, and I was 15. And it was a it was a beautiful, lavish Christmas time production, the Cinderella story. And I, I uh, it's one of the few things I've got from an audition. I walked in in my school uniform, and in those days we wore hats and gloves to school. So I looked like a prim little miss. I had my Panama hat and my gloves on and my little uniform, and I got the job. <laughs> I remember being so excited, and I got thirty pounds a week which when you only get a one pound a week pocket money, 30 pounds a week is pretty... Quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So it felt like early on that you were making it as an entertainer. Yeah. I think I think as soon as, uh, as soon as I got that professional job, I was kind of on my way. I did, my father was a lawyer and my brother's a barrister and it, I was expected to 
to, if not law, to do something, mm-hmm. get a tertiary education. But I never did because I kept getting offered acting work. <laughs> right. And you, you, you're offered a scholarship um, and then you don't accept it. <laughs> yeah. What did your parents make of you diving into that field? I promised them that because we were going to shoot, uh, I was uh, offered a TV series to be shot in the outback, and the Australian outback is incredible. Um, And it was going to be shot on film as opposed to, you know, videotape, and it was going to be directed by a really good director called Ken Hannam who made some great films, including... Sunday too far away. And so I, it was too good an opportunity to pass up to go and do social work at Sydney Uni. So mm. I, I said to my parents, I will go next year if you just, you know, if you're agreeable to me doing. And they said, sure. And of course I never went. Right. But my, my dad always said, you know, because he also used to do social work apart from being a lawyer. He used to say I'd be a terrible social worker. I'd take everybody home with me and I'd have a house full of lame ducks. <laughs> About you? <laughs> he said I'd just be a soft touch, you know. Is that in your nature to do that? Um, no, I'm a bit tougher now. I used to be like that. So you were softer back then? Well, my parents were so kind, I think. They were a good example. Um, there were terrible floods in... Um, in about 1954, 55, uh, a few hundred miles from Sydney. And we were little, my brother and I, and my parents made us up. We drove to help the flooded the people and we had to take our Christmas presents and give them away to the children who'd lost their Christmas presents in the floods. And we thought that was terribly unjust. It was meant to give us a sense of... Um, community, mm. <laughs> social justice. It just made us resentful. That's a silly story. Isn't it? <laughs> it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, they did it another time too when we had disastrous bushfires in in Sydney in the 50s. And a, an entire town called Lura was wiped out and we had to give away our Christmas presents that year too. <laughs> mm. I'm fascinated in the fact that shortly after the time you're describing... And the time uh, as this clip is happening at 19, you are also getting married for the first time. Yeah, yeah. What do you remember about getting married at age 19 and in your career happening and, and all this sort of, I would say, good stuff happening at once? Yeah, well, I was always a romantic. And, um, and I'd had a few boyfriends by then and I just fell head over heels in love with the, a director of a TV show I was doing. David Price. That's right. But I'd always loved boys since I was about three. I used to <laughs> love kissing boys, <laughs> even as a three-year-old. Three, three years old, you, you found yeah. out you needed that. Yeah. You know, some, some, with some little boys love girls too from a very early age. Other little boys can't stand them. Um I remember my son had all had it all worked out who he was going to marry when he was four, um, Imogen Yang. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she married someone else. Ah, but um, it usually doesn't work out like that. Yeah, and there was a um, there was a boy called Charles at kindergarten when I was about three, and he was always crying, and I used to go and kiss him, and he'd stop crying, and I thought 
kissing's good if it can stop people <laughs> being sad. <laughs> so you have a, a, a kind of caretaking quality about you. Well, yeah, I don't think I was a very good parent. I think I was too impatient and inconsistent and and probably not always there. But my son... He's. He, I brought him up to be polite. He he assures me I was fine as a mother. So I don't know. I don't think we're ever ever happy with our parenting. You know, I wonder because I I, I have conversations with my mother. Yeah. And she often, you know, when we have a weekend together, at the end of it, she'll always end the weekend being like, "Look, I failed you as a parent." <laughs> I'm like that. Yes. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Bless her. I failed you now. Have a safe uh, flight back home. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, every, without fail, oh. she will make that admission. And I have to say, well, I don't think you did. What a dear woman. <laughs> what is that about mothers and sons? I don't know. I remember falling in love with my baby boy the minute I saw him. And I've never really fell out of love with him. Mm. And, you, and you, you live through all your child's disappointments. I, I always wanted four kids, but I wasn't a good breeder. So I've only got one. Whether, whether or not we put too much of our hopes into the one child. But the only ambition I had for my child was that he be happy. That, that's all you want, that mm. they're contented. And he seems okay. He's got two nice kids. Um. He's a lot stricter than I was. I think that goes in cycles. I think each generation does the opposite of what the previous one They have did. to do like some course correction. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> Were you nervous about getting married at 19? No, I couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. No. As your career was blossoming. Yeah. You just thought this was the move to do. Well, I was in a TV show that, that my husband was directing, so we were... We were with each other 24-7. And Is just, that a good thing? Um, at the time it was, yeah. Um, yeah, at the time it was. Wouldn't it be nice, that song by the Beach Boys, that was our sort of, that was our song because we used to think, you know, I'd have to go home to my house, to my parents, and we used to think, wouldn't it be nice if we could just be together 24 hours a day? And it was nice. It was good. I don't regret any of my love life. I mm. think I've made some strange choices, but uh, I don't regret any. I say shortly after uh, being married. And, <laughs> this and is making, so personal. <laughs> well, you know, we're gonna catch we're gonna catch a whole life. It's all in your book, also, which I think is it a is. really beautiful book, by the oh, way. And thank pe you. People should should read that. Um, is it all right? It's yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, fifteen years since. I wrote it, and I wrote it under great, um, I was very reluctant, great duress, I, but I was broke at the time, and they sent me this huge uh, advance, and um, I spent it, and I'd only written half a chapter, so then I had to write the book. Right, you were required to yes. just finish it. And uh, I I used to, because I never, I never wanted to write a memoir. Um, Why is that? Well, I've always thought, Without absolute candor, there's no point in a memoir. I think you've got to be candid. I don't mean you have to tell everything, but I think you've got to be honest. And I think a lot of memoirs are kind of mealy-moused and half-assed. Right. I totally agree. <laughs> 
And and I didn't want to be candid and give away stuff when my parents were still alive. So that was one thing. But by the time I did write it, they'd been they'd both been dead for quite a while. So there were a few things in it that I would never wanted them to know. Well, something less personal for a second. I want to go into the fact that through the 70s and 80s, you're on a bunch of television shows, you're in a handful of films, more than a handful, a lot of films, stage plays. This is a very busy time in your life. When you think back on it, did it feel busy? Did it feel momentous? Yeah, I I, I was always working. I've always been a bit... Uh, I've always been industrious. I also have a great capacity for idleness. <laughs> I'm good at doing nothing. Are you? But um but yeah, I've I've always worked really hard and usually doing things back to back. I haven't loved every job I've done and for a time. You know, I was a uh, for one year I was a showbiz reporter. And I used to I've interviewed some pretty big names on a t on a current affairs program including Sammy Davis Jr., Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Burl Ives, Fleetwood Mac. Um, and one thing about that, it taught me to be a good interviewee. I tried to give people value <laughs> because I know what it's like to try and get um, to try and get people to open up when they're just all they want to do is answer yes or no. I try not to do that. <laughs> I think you're doing a great job. Oh, thanks. In answer to your question, I always felt um, really busy but thrilled about it. I've always been very, I've usually been fairly cheerful. Though I have my dark moments like everybody. Mm. Everybody's fighting some kind of battle right. in their own way. I think everyone's different too. Yeah. In their own way. Yeah, and on that subject i i think everybody's sexuality is unique to themselves and you can't generalize mm. about sexuality what do you mean by that i don't think we should judge people for their sexuality unless they're impinging on other people's freedom um i think in my youth what would have been thought really odd should be okay now including every kind of lgbt I <laughs> and it's nobody's business but the person themselves. Right. Provided um, it's not impinging on someone else's freedom. Did you find balancing uh, love and your very busy career to be a challenge at all? <laughs> yes, sometimes it was very hectic. Why are you laughing? Oh, <laughs> yeah, because I was famous for having a very hectic love life in my youth. <laughs> Were you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd I, be married a few times. Mm-hmm. I had a few boyfriends. <laughs> it, I find it personally to be a, an ongoing battle to want to wanna work and then to also be in love. They both require so much of you. Well, yeah, they occupies a lot of your thinking time, especially when you're in limerence. You know that word? I love that word. It's that feeling that you get at the beginning of a love affair Uh and it lasts anywhere from six months to a year. The honeymoon phase. And you are 
all you can do is think of that person. Right. And you are in such a state. Gosh, and isn't that obnoxious? <laughs> it's hard to con- it's hard to concentrate on other things. But when but when the limerence stops and you get and you're sane and it's still going on the the love, but without that <gasps> <gasps> Right. The constant feeling yes, in your stomach. Yes. <laughs> I think most people go through periods of limerence. Mm, if they're lucky. <laughs> yeah. But you have to be open to it. Yeah, you do. You do. You know, and and looking at your life, there is a period from 1988 to 2010 where you're not doing as many TV shows and films, but you are working a lot on stage. I know you've discussed this period before, but I, I'm curious, at the time, what did you make of that moment in your life? Well, because I was always working in the theatre, see, I was never really out of work. But there was a period um, where I didn't do any, I wasn't offered any films at all. And I used to get a little disappointed and I used to get a bit wistful, but I was never bitter or anything. Because I've always been philosophical about if a director or a producer don't want you, they don't want you. It's There's no hidden agenda usually. You just got to suck it up and keep going. And because I always had terrific um, jobs in the theatre, I've done some wonderful plays. And we have a really strong theatre scene in Australia. It's much like New York or London. Mm. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I counted myself as really lucky. I've played a lot of Americans on stage. I've done Tennessee Williams and and Arthur Miller and I've done six different Neil Simon women and I was in Born Yesterday, Six Degrees of Separation. The list goes on and on. So that's where I kind of got to polish my various American accents. Was there a role in that time on stage that you thought I think I got this. <laughs> yeah, well, the the one the one thing that I did the most performances of it was five hundred and fifty nine performances of a musical written by. Um, you your, had the number down to five hundred and fifty nine. Well, that's because I try to be precise. I've been going around saying I did six hundred performances, and that's a, a bit of a fib. Right. It was five hundred and fifty nine. You're about precision. I understand. <laughs> And it was Neil Simon and Marvin Hamlish, and it was a two-hander with um, one of my best friends, um, not a lover, surprisingly, uh, and that was called They're Playing Our Song, and um, we did that in Sydney and Melbourne, 559 performances. Mm. Yeah. I, I know it's hard for actors to talk about the art of acting, because I feel like it is equivalent to music. And that, you know, to describe how one makes a song is almost impossible. Yeah, it's kind of ephemeral, yeah. It comes from the gut. Yeah, sure. Um, and the heart. But is there something you think you have as a person that enables you to be such a dynamic performer? My young friends often say to me, we can tell you anything because you're so not judgmental. Right. And... The first time that was said to me many years ago, I thought, oh, that's probably true. I think 
I think to portray other people who are very different from yourself, you have to have a really open mind. It's best not to be judgmental when you're playing even the most evil of characters to get inside their heads. You, it's better to come at it from an unjudgmental way. I've played some villains and it's not until after I see the finished work that I can say, oh, what a mm. dreadful person. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. Yeah, I think I've heard actors say when they play uh, the Shakespearean wicked Scottish king whose name we won't mention because it's bad luck, <laughs> that uh, they couldn't approach it thinking this man is evil. They approach it trying to understand him and become him and then let other people decide he's evil. Yeah, I think what you're describing is uh, <laughs> not reducing people to good and evil. Yeah, it, that's too simple. That's too... It doesn't It doesn't get to the, the mm. root of it. How did you get to be someone who reserves judgment so generously? Um, it's not a conscious thing. It's something that, I mean... Some people I think are awful and I say so. I'm not I'm not the nicest woman in the world. And I hate I don't like thieves and I and of course I can't stand murderers or people who hurt children. Right. I'll I'll judge them. I, I, by the way, I assumed coming into this interview <laughs> you don't like thieves, you don't like murderers. But as far as people's peccadilloes go and their their sort of um personality irritating personality traits I, I honestly don't blame them or judge them. Mm. Now and again, I'll think someone's batshit crazy. Right. <laughs> Sorry, are you allowed to swear? You're on allowed your... to curse as much as you want. <laughs> Gosh, it's like Australian. It's the wild, wild you west can, over here. Yeah, we can we can swear on Australian TV much more than I, 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 I had to. Yeah. I had to do a voiceover for um, this film, Poms. Uh, there's a a little voiceover and I'm saying you should be dancing your ass off. And we had to change it to dancing your heart out because you're not allowed to say ass on free-to-wear TV in America. Really? Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> Apparently. I had no idea. Isn't that weird? I'm totally blown away by this. <laughs> totally blown away. Yeah. You know... The, the word is ass anyway. <laughs> you can Look, you know what, since you didn't get to say it... For palms, you can really just keep saying it on the show. Thank you. No, I won't say it again. No, there might no, be no. someone out there who, who finds it offensive. You know, if they do, they shouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> you know, you talked about how you made the question philosophical in this quiet period in your career. Is there is there a part of you that had a hard time grappling with once doing this kind of work and then not doing that kind of work? Well, honestly... No, because I was almost doing plays back to back, you know, eight shows a week really consumes your your stamina and your thought processes. Mm. And though I would look on films being done and think, oh, nobody thought of me for that. Um, that's like the old joke about how many actors to change a light bulb. Um, 41 to do it and 39 to say, I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally true. Yeah. So I um, I honestly was so busy because I've been, here's another number. I'm a bit obsessed with numbers. I've done 73 plays. 
Um, somebody told me I'd done 92. And I yesterday I counted how many films I've done. I have 40 down. It's uh, 53. Oh, I'm off. Yeah. Okay. Um, counting Australian films. Since I came to America, I've, I've done 25 films, mm. which is pretty incredible. I can't believe that. It is because in 2010, uh, Animal Kingdom comes out in the States. You were asked to do this movie in 2000. It took a decade for them yeah. to get uh, the budget for it. I need to know, you're like in Australia. This film is coming out. It starts receiving rave reviews. And I remember distinctly watching that film in 2010 and wondering, who the hell is this woman? <laughs> now, she was evil. That was based on a, on a real person yeah. who... Who uh, it seems was like the, a lot worse than the character in the film. It seems like the farthest uh, kind of person that you are. Yeah, well, I think that was David Michaud, who whose whole idea it was and who loosely based it on some real events in Melbourne. That was his idea. He wanted that character to seem a kind of um, normal to the point of mundane and the things she does are terrible. I mean, she shops her own grandson to be murdered. She's, uh, that phrase, the banality of evil, you know. When we made it, I thought it was going to be good. But when I saw the crew screening, I thought, this is amazing. For my, um, for my money, I reckon Ben Mendelsohn's the best performance in that film. Mm-hmm. He's extraordinary. Unbelievable. And I've known him. He's about, he's a little bit older than my real life son. So, and I first met him when he, he was a child actor and I first met him when he was 14 and he was the sweetest boy. Mm-hmm. And then I did a film with him uh, called Cozzy when he was in his 20s. And, um, and I've always had a real soft spot for him. I thought he really nailed it playing that evil, crazy psychopath Um, and and me, the sociopath. Look, I know you've got a problem, Janine, but I don't see how this mess you boys are in has got anything to do with me. So if you've called me in here to see if there's some strings I can pull in your way, of course. Is that what this is about? Hey, Randall. Before you go on, this boy who's currently being looked after, tell me if you agree with this, this boy who's being looked after, he knows who you are. And you know how these things go. They're going to ask him all sorts of questions about everything he's ever seen or done, everyone he's ever met, the whole schmozzle. And you've done some bad things, sweetie, haven't you? I want this part to be clear. This is not about you doing me a favour or me blackmailing you, anything like that. It's just a bad situation for everyone. So, yeah, it was thrilling to see the crew um, screening. We couldn't believe how good it was and how how well the audience um, loved it. But then, of course, Sundance picked it up. And it was the Sundance Festival and it won the jury prize and then um, Sony Classics picked it up and and from there it just snowballed. And I didn't know what it hit me, to tell you the truth. I was gobsmacked. Was it um, disorienting? No, I kind of rode the wave of 
excitement. I, I think because I had all that experience, it didn't really go to my head. Right. Um, it's kind of the right time for things to go really well. Probably, yeah. I mean, who knows? Some young people take overnight success really well. Others kind of get confused and mm-hmm. behaves in a silly way. Did it confuse you at all? No, it, it was a little overwhelming, but it didn't confuse me. I, I knew enough about ups and downs, you know, um, getting great reviews and a lot of love and affection. And then a couple of years later, people have forgotten it. You're only as good as your last job, you know. Uh, that's the other thing I say to young actors. Most people, most people do a couple of job interviews every five to ten years. We do about twenty job interviews a year, and we have to face constant rejection. Mm. And fifty years of it, you kind of take it on the chin. Yeah, it still hurts sometimes. Have you, in your life and in your career, ever put? you know, your happiness on whether or not you're doing well in work? No, I've never done that. But I, because I've always had such a happy personal life, I know that a lot of actors do that. And it, it's really bad for their personal relationships. Right, because it can't stay forever. Yeah. Like you were describing, the ins and outs and the ebbs and flows. That's right. It's not sustainable. And sometimes you'll do a piece of work that you think's good and everyone hates it, <laughs> you know? And you just got to shrug your shoulders and get on with the next job. Which one was that for you? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I've probably put them all out of my head. I've been in a few plays that I thought were going to be great and they turn out to be a load of old crap. Mm. <laughs> Here I am swearing on American. It's so beautiful. It's perfect. People are going to be so overjoyed to hear it. <laughs> Let's talk about Palms for a second. Um, how do you feel about the movie? I think it's a beautiful film. It's um, it's not just a film about old girls being cheerleaders because um, the story was taken from actual women in Arizona in their 70s who formed a cheerleading team and they became quite well known and they called themselves poms after the pom-poms that you fling around. Mm -hmm. But it's more than that. It's a film about, you know, female empowerment, about staying relevant when you're older. It's about friendship and it's about love. And it's also, you know, it's about death too because... This is a part of life, and uh, and you realize that the older you get. You're going to do many interviews today. <laughs> they probably won't be like this one. No, this is very relaxed. Thank you. Oh, good. Um, what they're going to bring up um, is, of course, that Angelica Houston sort of thrashed the film in an interview. And then... Uh, she you, hadn't even seen it. She hadn't seen it. She hadn't seen it, <laughs> and she, she made fun of it. Your response to that was something like... Uh, well, don't you think I've said enough, more than enough? Yeah. I did swear. I've I thought it was totally fair what you said. <laughs> um, you basically said, no, actually, you said in plain words, go fuck yourself or something like that. Yeah, but I didn't say it to her. I was no, asked of course. what I thought at the time and I said, well, I just laughed and then I thought, well, she can go. Beyond the pettiness of her comment, because <laughs> it's actually not about that. I don't really care about that. 
I think at the heart of the issue is a conversation that she was trying to have, although rudely, that I think you've had before, which is about ageism in Hollywood. It's not just Hollywood. It's all over the world. Um, some of my best friends are in their 20s and 30s. And and we we connect, you know. I think my mother always used to say, we're all the same really, but some of us got here earlier. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, sure, you know a bit more from experience. But on the other hand, some people never learn from experience. <laughs> I think things are improving in as far as... Uh, film producers go. This is a film where all the protagonists are female and they're all over a certain age, except for the beautiful Alicia Bow. She is gorgeous. So, yeah, I think things are improving. I mean, we did have an all-female film in Steel Magnolias and mm-hmm. the play. That's another American play I was in for 300 performances. Got the numbers down. Yeah, I'm obsessed with numbers, are you? Why is that? I don't know. I, maybe to impress you. Oh, really? <laughs> You're doing a great job of impressing me. Oh, good, good. Why do you think society has this tendency to discard the elderly? It's ageism, and I think it's a Western thing. If you look at a lot of the Asian cultures, they revere their old people. And some of the European cultures, mm. they absolutely have them on a pedestal and they, they're reverential to whatever they have to say and... Uh, Japan, they're old people. That might be why a lot of Japanese people live to be to their 90s because they're looked after and treated as though they're valuable. It's a a problem with our culture, I think, which has for a few decades been youth-obsessed. And um, there's nothing wrong with youth, but there's nothing wrong with age either, Hmm. really. There's nothing that great about youth either. (laughs) As someone who's in the youth camp... (laughs) I can tell you, we got a bunch of idiots around here. Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, there's dumb, there's, you know, there's idiotic old people too. Don't get me wrong. Oh, sure. They all exist. We won't name names. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I have some numbers for you. Oh, yeah? Before we leave. Um, December 10th, 1944. Uh, your father sends a love letter to your mother, Edith. You're smiling. Oh, well, I, I'm smiling so I don't get tears in my eyes. Well, you're allowed to do that here. <laughs> um, I'd like to read this passage from his letter, if that's sure. all right with you. yeah. Okay. He wrote, You know, I don't believe I started loving you when I first met you. It started long before then. A time when I never imagined there would be a person to fit that picture. And yet deep in my heart, I knew that somewhere I would find you. A gay... Laughter-loving, blue-eyed girl waiting to be loved and to love. Sweetheart, darling, you were born to be cherished and made happy. I do love you more than I could ever express with all my heart. Artie. That's good, isn't it? It's my daddy. (laughs) Yeah. I'll tell you something funny now. Um... My mother was English and she was what they call a war bride. They got married towards the end of the war and then all the... He was in the Australian Air Force and he was took part in Bomber Command over Europe. And they were kids, you know. My mother was like 18 or something. And he, um, he was 
sent back to Australia with the troops and then the brides, what they call war brides, um, mm. they, uh, they followed afterwards four months later. And, and when my mother's ship came in <laughs> um, with all these war brides um, and, and my dad and she uh, were reunited um, and there was a photo of them and it was on the front page of the, of the Daily Mirror, a Sydney newspaper. And I remember as a little girl hearing someone say to my dad, how long was Edie in Australia before she got pregnant with Jackie? And my dad said, 20 minutes. (laughs) 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 Which is really sweet. (laughs) It is very sweet. So I was born out of love and lust. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That's a great combination. (laughs) The line that I keep coming back to is you were born to be cherished and made happy. Isn't that good? It's really good. And I I guess I'm interested, you know, you've been married... Many times. Four times. I think it's five (laughs) times with four people is the numbers. Yeah. I'm trying to get the numbers right for you. Excellent. Do you feel like you've been cherished and made happy by the people? I still love all of my exes, a couple of them. Well, three of them are dead now. I also lived with a few men for several years that I didn't actually have a wedding ceremony. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I never really stopped loving the ones I've loved, which proves it's real love, I think. But I've always been had a restless spirit and been a bit of an adventure and I've moved on. I think I always, uh, you know, coveted um, a relationship like my parents. They were married for all of their lives together. That, that sounds and impossible to me. It does sound impossible, but they were happy and they were always affectionate um, to each other and I never heard raised voices. I'm sure they had disagreements, but we were never aware of it. And I think I used to bolt from relationships as soon as there was anything slightly volatile because I was looking for the perfect relationship like my parents had. Mm. Do you think you gave up on... Some loves too easily. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But I'm, I've been lucky. I'm still lucky. <laughs> it seems like your life has been f- so full. Yeah. I look back and think I certainly crammed a lot in. <laughs> <laughs> you have more to go. You have more to go. I mean, last year I know um, you had a tumor. Yeah, that's right. You, you say that like you just remembered that you had the tumor. Yeah, well, I, I kind of I've put it behind me now. I'm kind of proud of it because it was a really rare one. It was a pheochromocytoma, mm. which is um, which is a usually benign tumor of the adrenal gland. But mine was huge. It was like the size of a mango, and they're usually only the size of a of a twenty five cent piece, and. Seven-hour surgery in Cedars-Sinai, genius doctor. Mm. And uh, I lost one of my adrenal glands, but um, I got to keep my kidney and my spleen, which they told me I might lose. Were you fearful? Um, No, I'm pretty brave and stoic. It's the English side of me. I was a little nervous. I kind of thought, this could be it, but I didn't believe it was it. Mm-hmm. My poor husband, Sean, he was he was a bit scared. I think it's 
sometimes harder for the for the carer than it is for the person undergoing it. Mm. I know my child was in hospital many times when he was when he was young because he had eye problems. By the time he was twenty one, he'd had twenty general anaesthetics, and you really do wish you could do it for them. You know that they didn't have to suffer. That you could substitute in. Yes, yes. Yeah. Part of being a parent. Do you fear death at all? Um, I won't say I fear death. I've been at a lot of deathbeds. But I don't want it to come for a while. I mean, if I, if I get really sick, I don't want to suffer. But that I'm, is like a Woody Allen line. I want to stay healthy. So, yeah, well, I'm a bit Woody Allen-ish. I don't fear death. I just, you know... I, I don't want it for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Well, I heard, um, I heard about, I've I've known women who live to, to their nineties and they, and they get very bored and they and they're a bit frail and their quality of life is such that they just don't want to live anymore. I don't want to be like that. Mm. But I also heard of a woman recently who was still living in her own house, cooking for herself, getting up every day, dressed and having an interesting life. And and then one day she she didn't feel too well and she she lay down on the bed and she died quietly. And she was 106. And I want to be like that. I think that would be fabulous. I don't have to keep working. But, you know, Betty White, I think she's 97 now. We haven't heard from her much for a couple of years, but she was still working Mm -hmm. at 95. A good woman. She seems a very good woman, Betty White. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't mind being like that too, you know. I I am twenty four. Are you? And I I've got shoes older than you. Well, <laughs> that's a great line. It's it's a Debbie Reynolds line. Is it? Yeah, I you stole know, it. I'm glad you're you're referencing properly. <laughs> I wish I could be as calm about uh, the end of all this as as you are. Yeah, who knows when the time comes? Maybe I'll turn into a total panic merchant. I can't, I mean, I don't even smoke weed, you know. My, my husband's the pothead in the house. I don't, I don't do any, anything like that. I probably drink a bit too much Californian Chardonnay, but it's That's the best good. in the world. Of course. I have a genuine question before we leave. Yeah. As two ostensible <laughs> strangers, um, no one knows how much time they have in this life, but I am curious... What would you like to do with whatever is left? At the moment, I'd like to keep working while I can because I'm still getting a certain amount of satisfaction in what I'm doing. I've just done, apart from Poms, I've just done a TV series with the wonderful Steve Conrad. It's excellent. Yeah, called Perpetual Grace Limited. And we spent five months in... um, New Mexico, filming in sometimes quite trying circumstances. I play Ben Kingsley's wife and uh, Jimmy Simpson from Westworld's in it. It's a great cast. Um, the same team that brought you Patriot. And I I really loved doing that, even though we were filming in the snow and it was freezing and not easy. But um, as long as I 
get a certain satisfaction out of the stories I'm helping to tell. I want to keep going. And when and when I'm too tired and to keep acting, I just want to spend every day going to the movies. I love going to the movies. I t- I take my I take my duties as an academy voter for the past 9 years very seriously. I mm. s- I see as many of the eligible films as possible. There's usually about three more than 300 eligible each year and I only managed to see about 150 180 That's an impressive it's number. It's not bad, is it? And I do try to see them in a cinema if possible. I think the greatest um compliment you can give a filmmaker is to see his film properly on the big screen. Mm. So I try to do that. Sometimes I will watch them on my big TV screen at home on a screener, but I would never watch a film on my iPhone or on my iPad mini because I think it's not fair to the filmmaker really. I understand if you can't afford to go to the cinema all the time or or get a screener, but as a voter, I want to give them the best possible um, chance I can. And aside from work and movies? Well, I, I love to eat. <laughs> I'm trying not to drink so much. Um, I'm trying only to have alcohol one day a week, but that's pretty hard. <laughs> that sounds like a pain in the ass. Especially when you're a gin queen like I am. I love gin. <laughs> I have uh, one question before we go. Yeah. And it's uh, back to the numbers. It's it's one thing uh, I'm curious about. When this is all done, what's the thing you would like to tell people about living in this life? Something that they should know. Um, I'm trying to think of the Latin. Um, don't let the bastards grind you down. My dad used to say, it is our duty to be cheerful. <laughs> And there's there's too much negativity around. I think it's always been there, but now people have platforms like social media and so it seems more prevalent. But I think there's always been the the whingers and the whiners and the and the and the knockers and the haters. They've always been there. There just seem to be a lot more of them now because they're much more visible. But you know, mean girls have always been there and horrible poison pen letters. People used to send you anonymous letters in my use. Now they do it on social media. I think you've just got to try and stay positive. I know that's so corny and cheesy, but it's the best way to get through life. Not to let the little things upset you. Try and rise above it and be kind. Kindness is going out of fashion lately. You've got to be kind. Yeah. When in doubt, try kindness. Um, Well, I think you have tried kindness very well in this conversation. (laughs) And um, I thank you so much for coming in, Jackie Weaver. Thank you. It's been an honor.
Special thanks this week to Brianna Rifkin, Liz Mahoney, and Maddie McLaughlin. This episode of Talk Easy was taped at York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. If you'd like to learn more about this wonderful space, you can visit their site at yorkrecording.com. I have to say I have done many interviews in all kinds of different venues, but what Tim Moore and York Recording offers uh, is something truly singular. It is a warm, inviting, comfortable space, and uh, we are honored to be uh, recording in this space moving forward. So I want to give a shout out to Tim Moore and York Recording. If you'd also like to uh, record in their beautiful space, visit their site at yorkrecording.com. Also, as for Jackie Weaver, be sure to check out her new show. It's called Perpetual Grace Limited. It premieres today, Sunday, June 2nd on Epics. Uh, it is a really quality show and uh, definitely worth your time. To learn more about Jackie and the podcast, be sure to visit our site at talkeasypod.com. The show is available to stream on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TalkEasyPod. And as always, this show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Christian Shenoy, music by Dylan Peck, social media by Crystal Farmer, our engineer today was Tim Moore, our intern is Ghani Zur, our associate producer is Ian Chang, and the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you next Sunday. And uh, now, here's a song to play us out. Have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. 
If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 